Luke's Gospel, if we have been following along, if you've read the early chapters too, it paints a picture of reality that is uncomfortable for those of us who have grown up in the secular modern West. It's uncomfortable because the real, that reality involves an unseen spiritual realm and it's even more uncomfortable because it presents the whole visible world as being under two kingdoms, two unseen spiritual rulers. Either we are in Satan's kingdom or we are in God's kingdom under his chosen king, Jesus. And we see that early on in Luke, in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 to 8, where Jesus is tested and tempted by Satan in the wilderness. It says, The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, to Jesus, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. And for once, the devil is not lying. The rest of the New Testament affirms that Satan is the ruler of this world, at least in a superficial way. He has been ever since our first parents rebelled against God's loving rule and chose to listen to Satan instead of to God. And there's a, a simple logic to it. Whichever voice you listen most attentively to is the voice that you will obey, and the voice that you obey is the voice you will be ruled by. And Adam and Eve listened to Satan's voice and ended up being ruled by him. And humanity has shared their guilt and confirmed their choice a billion times over ever since. And God can't turn a blind eye to that. A just God must punish. And the devil knows this. In fact, he delights in it because he too is condemned and he wants to drag down as many others with him as possible. So he uses all his power to try and keep us on the same sinking ship as himself and oblivious to any lifeboat, so to speak, that God might send out. He uses a mixture of enticement, of fear, and ignorance. He entices us to keep sinning with the, the lie that going our own way, not God's, is going to make us truly happy, it's going to leave us truly fulfilled, it's going to bring lasting pleasure. He keeps people in fear of the spiritual world, in fear of God too, through demonic harassment or possession or curses, so that they'll go to any lengths to try and appease the spirits and secure a quiet, prosperous life. Or he incites intellectual movements like the European Enlightenment that simply deny the existence of the spiritual realm altogether. And he encourages ignorance so that we don't fear either God or the devil and we strive in vain to create heaven on earth in our own strength and by our own 
deeply flawed wisdom. And we, under, we in the West, for the most part, have long been under that spell of ignorance so that we easily fail to recognize either his enticements for what they are and we struggle to know what to do with talk of unclean spirits and devils when we hear it. Never mind if, as is probably not often the case for most of us, we actually encounter someone who is suffering from demonic harassment. <laughs> But in the rest of the world, as in Jesus' day, hundreds of millions of people engage in shamanism, witchcraft, ancestor worship, and a whole host of other occult practices. And many people still do this, even when they formally identify as Muslim, or Buddhist, or Roman Catholic, or even Protestant. I learned a little of this when I visited a, a theological college in Uganda in 2018. And the guys in, who were trained for ministry there were telling me that witch doctors are ever-present throughout Uganda and the reality of people claiming to be Christian but trying to curse their neighbors or win over ancestors or malign spirits is, is going on all over the place. It's rife across Latin America too, and the Middle East and East Asia. And increasingly, it is present here. And this is partly because more and more people are migrating to the UK from spiritually aware parts of the world. But it's also because postmodernism leaves people with the illusion that any truth is valid so long as it works for you. And so they seek to satisfy that age-old hunger for hope, or for security and for control over their lives by dabbling in the spiritual world. So in the 2021 census results, 74,000 people in England and Wales put their religion as pagan. Quite what that means, I'm not entirely sure, but there it is. 13,000 as Wicca, witchcraft. 8,000 as shamanists. And then if you drill down into the results, there's a, a whole host of other things like Druidism, Heathenism, Occultism, Satanism, followers of Shinto, African traditional religion, and a load of other things I'd never heard of. All of which dabble in the spiritual realm. So maybe it's not surprising that TikTok's witch talk hashtag has received over 30 billion hits by October last year. Now that's, that could be four searches for every single person on this planet. And to put a familiar face on all of this, the actress Emma Watson, uh, think Hermione Granger in Harry Potter, recently posted on her Twitter feed, thank you to the witches in my coven who were so pivotal in helping me arrive at where and who I am now. And there's a string of emojis that probably have some kind of witchy significance. And then she says, you are my avengers and you inspire me to kick ass. Now we might laugh at that, but she's not laughing. That is a serious part of her life. She's actually coming to Oxford to study soon. So increasingly, 
this reality is on our doorstep. It's not just out there, it's not just in the past. We need to know what to do with it. And the problem is that most people don't realize that these powers which promise freedom are all devices of Satan to keep people enslaved and condemned and far from God. You might ask, why does God allow this? Well, to be brutally honest, it is nothing less than we deserve. Our own natures are so corrupted by sin that we tend to love going our own way and we fundamentally mistrust or even hate God. That is what we are like by nature. And so God gives us over to our desires. He lets us go our own way and, well, that is where we end up. Stuck in Satan's kingdom. But the good news is that God doesn't always do this. Ever since he first appeared to Abraham 4,000 years ago and promised to bless every nation on earth through him, God has been mercifully calling people out of Satan's kingdom. He kept the light of hope alive in the world through his mercy to Israel, through the teaching of Moses and the prophets. And he has brought the culmination of that hope. In Jesus. We see that in Luke chapter 11. We see it because Jesus displays a power over Satan that no one had witnessed before. That's what we're going to explore for the rest of this sermon. Firstly, by asking what is the significance of Jesus' power, what to make of it. And secondly, how should we respond to his power? So firstly, what is the significance of Jesus' power? Because he wasn't totally unique. The Jews had their own exorcists in Jesus' day. And they would try to cast out demons through a, a variety of incantations with mixed success. But as we see in our passage in verse 14, Jesus was different Luke simply says, when the demon left. No ifs, no buts, no struggle. And in fact, by this time in Luke's gospel, Jesus had driven out so many demons that Luke can just casually remark on it in one sentence as if it's the most normal thing in the world. It's seemingly effortless for Jesus, and the effect is not lost on the crowd, who are amazed. But the key question arises, by whose power is he doing this? By whose power? By Beelzebub, by the prince of demons? Could it be that Jesus' power is just yet another fraud by Satan to make people feel secure so that they continue in their ignorance of their slavery? Well, Jesus knew what they were thinking, which perhaps is another sign that he is more than human. So let's examine his answer. He demolishes their accusation in, in two ways. And the first is by appealing to common sense. Jesus was driving out demons on a vast scale. 
So much so that it couldn't just be Satan pretending to, to take a few of his minions out of action in order to give the appearance of defeat. This wasn't a, a strategic repositioning of his troops. His forces were being routed by Jesus. So if Jesus was really using Satan's power, then Satan must be in a civil war with his own demons. And a civil war is about the worst way of undermining a kingdom. A normal war unites everyone against a common enemy. But a civil war turns neighbor against neighbor and tears a country apart. Interestingly, historians estimate that in the war to end all wars in World War I, about 1.9 or 2.2% of the UK population was killed by various means. In the English Civil War, 7% was killed, either through the fighting or through diseases spread by the troops. Far more destructive in terms of the proportion of the population affected. And as Jesus says in verses 17 to 18, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Think how shattered Syria is at the moment after, what, a decade of fighting against ISIS and other insurgencies? It is in ruins. And so for Satan's kingdom, if Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? Satan would have to be pretty stupid to inflict upon himself the damage that Jesus was doing. That's the first argument. But secondly, Jesus refutes these accusations by revealing their double standards. Verse 19, Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. His Jewish audience had no problem with their own exorcists. To the extent that they were successful, I guess that they were celebrated. So how can people in the crowd have one standard for those exorcists and another for Jesus, who is a fellow Jew and clearly a far more effective exorcist than all the others? It's hypocrisy. They ought to be celebrating Jesus all the more or else they ought to accuse their own exorcists of being in league with the devil. And what would they say to that, I wonder? If there is anyone less likely to be driving out demons by the power of Satan, it is Jesus. That is the point. And that only leaves one option. What is the significance of his power? Well, verse 20... If I drive out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus must be driving out demons by the finger of God, the power of God, which means that God's long-awaited kingdom has finally arrived. Satan's stranglehold over the earth is, is being broken. His fist prized apart. His kingdom is in retreat. God's 
liberating, loving reign is breaking into hearts and lives of lost souls to bring healing and forgiveness and hope. In Jesus, light has dawned upon a dark world. I wonder if you remember what a long cold, grey and depressing winter we had from the end of 2020 into 2021. It seemed like spring would never come to me. Not only was was it cold and grey for so long, but we were stuck in a lockdown where we were, in some ways, captives, waiting for COVID to end. And do you remember how glorious it was when spring finally arrived and when the restrictions eased just after Easter in 2021? And the sun came out and we were actually allowed to go outside and enjoy it with each other. Okay, there were still some restrictions, but how good did that feel? And that is just like a a shadow of how relieved we should feel that Jesus has come, that he has broken in through the darkness, that he has broken Satan's power. And we should be all the more thankful because Jesus' attack on Satan was not a short-lived thing. He didn't just cast out a few demons while he was on earth and then go back to heaven and leave us to it. This was a decisive victory, a turning point in history. Because as Jesus says in verses 21 to 22, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Jesus is the stronger man who has overpowered Satan and taken away the armor in which he trusted. It's not just that Jesus, as the Son of God, is more powerful than Satan, so that demons are forced to obey him. Rather, as we see when Jesus, right from early on in Luke's Gospel, starts to forgive people's sins, Jesus is taking away Satan's greatest weapon. Satan's very name means accuser or adversary. That's the person who brings charges against you in the courtroom. And his chief power over humanity is not sending demons to harass us or possess us. It is his ability to accuse us of our sins before God so that God must punish. But Jesus would soon suffer that condemnation, that punishment for every person who would ever believe in him. He would strip Satan of his greatest weapon, the power to accuse, because there would be nothing left to accuse them of, nothing left to punish. And he was plundering Satan's kingdom by freeing lost souls. So Jesus' victory over Satan is permanent. Everyone who believes in Jesus and follows him will be free from Satan's dominion. 
we are welcomed into God's kingdom instead. And unlike Satan, who treats us as slaves to be abused and mocked, the Father treats us as his beloved children. Satan gives stones and scorpions to pick up on last week's passage, but the Father does not. How thankful should we be this morning if Jesus has rescued us from Satan's kingdom? Dancing in the aisles would not be inappropriate. And I'd encourage you to reflect on that this week. Where might your life be if you had remained blind to your sin, bound by Satan, and following the same vain worldly desires that you used to have, probably still struggle with to some extent, and that your peers have followed, where would you be? Where would I be? I wouldn't be standing here. So however hard it can be following Jesus, we have so much to thank him for. But it seems to me, particularly in verses 27 to 28, that thankfulness and marveling at Jesus is not where we should stop. Yes, Jesus is extraordinary. Yes, Mary was blessed to bear him and give birth to him. But knowing that is not enough to keep us out of Satan's kingdom. Which brings us to our second point. How should we respond to Jesus as the stronger man who overpowers Satan. How should we respond? And in particular, how should we respond if we are not demon-possessed ourselves and don't know anyone who currently is, which is probably many of us, most of us, I'm guessing. The first clue is in verse 23. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And he's basically saying, choose very carefully which side you want to be on. We should know by this time that the world is divided into two kingdoms, Satan's or God's. And God's kingdom is present wherever anyone believes in Jesus. But Jesus is saying there is no neutral territory. You cannot be like Switzerland in this war. If we don't actively choose to follow Jesus and work for his cause, we are against him, he says. And if we are against him, we are on the losing side because Jesus is the stronger man. If you would not call yourself a Christian today, please, please consider this very carefully. Christianity might not look like the winning side in 21st century Britain or Europe, when most of the older denominations are in terminal decline. But that is not because Jesus has failed. That is because those churches have, not uniformly, but in large part, abandoned the truth 
about who Jesus is and what he teaches, and they have tried to win people over by conforming to the winds and the changing trends of secular culture. They have lost the gospel that contains the power to save. That is why they are in decline. And on the other hand, Christianity is spreading like wildfire in most of the rest of the world. As proof of the the supernatural power behind it, We see the way that it grows most where it is most persecuted. And so the biggest number of Christians in the world today is in communist China, where potentially there may be as many as 80 or even 100 million Christians. And the fastest growing church in the world today is in Iran. So if you've not yet asked Jesus to forgive your sins, If you've not yet decided to follow him, please don't hang about. And please heed his warning too in verses 24 to 26. So Jesus in these verses is talking primarily about demonic possession or harassment. And it is a picture of someone who has been freed from demonic influence, but then fails to follow Jesus. Instead, they settle down to a a comfortable, quiet life focused on themselves, and that's what's represented, I think, by a house that is swept clean, put in order. But because they have not sided with the stronger man who would protect them, they are left wide open to further attack from Satan. And that is exactly what happens. The impure spirit brings seven others worse than itself, and the condition of that person is worse than at the beginning. And this warning doesn't just apply to those troubled by overt demon possession. I think there is a a secondary application to anyone who has received some kind of beneficial light from Jesus' word and from his power in their lives. Which includes everyone listening today. When we hear the good news of Jesus proclaimed, that in itself is a temporary binding of Satan, so to speak. Satan likes nothing better than to keep us in complete ignorance of Jesus, because then he's in no danger of losing us. So any proclamation of Jesus' kingdom is an unwelcome intrusion for Satan. The very fact that you are here, that I am speaking, that we have got God's word open this morning, is an unwelcome intrusion for Satan. And yet it is a moment of opportunity for us. A moment when, if we have not yet believed, hope and forgiveness and freedom become possible. But only if we act upon it. Only if we do what Jesus says in verse 28. And don't just listen passively and let the words go in one ear and out the other. But if we hear the word of God with attentive ears, hungry to understand, hungry to know more, that is the kind of listening Jesus is talking about. Only if we obey the word by repenting of our sin, by following Jesus, 
will we then be released from Satan's kingdom fully? Only then will the moment of opportunity become a lifetime of worthwhile sacrifice and service that brings blessing in the present and eternal life in the age to come. And that doesn't just apply to people hearing the gospel for the first time. For those of us who have been in or around church for years, there is a sense in which we must seize again on the grace offered to us, the power and presence of Jesus in his word, by his spirit and in his church. Otherwise, we leave ourselves open and vulnerable to Satan's renewed assaults. Now, that won't be demonic possession for a believer. I don't believe that's impossible, though he might harass us in a number of tangible and scary ways. But it might mean subtle deceits and temptations that creep in unexpected and end up dragging us far away from God. Perhaps like King David when he decided that sleeping with Bathsheba and then murdering Uriah was a good idea. And he was brought to repentance, but what a mess in the meantime. While we can trust that Jesus will not ultimately lose any of those that the Father has given him, we must also remember the warnings of Scripture Warnings about those who appear to be Christians but then fall away. Who end up in a worse state than if they'd never believed. Hebrews 6 verse 6 says, To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. And Hebrews 6 verse 4 says, It is impossible for such a person to be saved once they have gone down that road. And I'm sure most of us know at least one person who looked like a solid Christian once. Maybe they were, seemed on fire for the Lord and they were president of the Christian Union or they were even in Christian ministry. And now they are spiritually nowhere. If we don't want to be like that, we must recognize that there is no room for complacency in the Christian life. No room for complacency. We must keep on hearing and obeying the word of God. Which takes us back to Dan's sermon three weeks ago, to Luke 10, 38-42, to Mary and Martha. We have to ask ourselves again and again, which voices are the dominant ones in our lives? Is it the voice of Jesus? Or is it the voices of the world? and the flesh, and behind them, the devil. Now, Jesus is wonderfully kind. Jesus has given us ordinary means of grace in the preaching of his word every Sunday, in the Lord's Supper and baptism, in prayer, in Christian fellowship, in the Bible available in modern, plain English, Persian, Romanian, Portuguese, all the other languages represented here today. And these things are sufficient to grow his kingdom more and more in us if we will use them. But you know the best thing 
that Jesus has given to keep the devil from returning and reclaiming those that were once his own. The Holy Spirit. So back in Luke 3.16, Jesus was once again described as one stronger or more powerful because he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And for each of us who has believed in him, that has happened. He has given the Holy Spirit to cleanse and purge us of the evil of sin, of the works of the devil, to fill the void that was left by the devil when he was driven out. He gives us the Holy Spirit so we can enjoy the closest possible relationship with God. And he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we have the power to obey God's words, to live lives pleasing to him and resist the devil's temptations. The Holy Spirit fills all followers of Jesus. And just before today's passage, back in Luke 11, as we heard in the all-age slot, Jesus had stressed how willingly God the Father continues to give the Holy Spirit to all who ask him. Even if you've been a believer for years, I think the New Testament is clear that believers can receive fresh fillings of the Holy Spirit to empower us for the battle. So if you feel under attack, if you feel yourself stumbling, struggling, under the force of Satan's discouragements or lies or temptations. You can ask your father to give you more aid and he will give you more help through his spirit. So Jesus is the stronger man. He's overpowered Satan. He has sent his kingdom into full retreat and he gives us everything we need to remain, to enter his kingdom, to remain in it, to persevere and receive the blessings. And whether you need to hear and obey his word for the first time this morning, or whether we need to receive it afresh for the thousandth time, Let's take a moment in quiet to reflect, to pray to him. And if, if you have experienced, are experiencing what I have called demonic harassment, you feel like there is a, some kind of tangible and discouraging presence of the devil in your life, please come and talk to, to me, to one of the elders, or... Frankly, anyone whom you feel comfortable talking to after the service. And a few of us will pray for you because it seems to me as I read the gospel, we don't need magical incantations to do what Jesus did. We need to pray. And he will still bring deliverance from that kind of demonic harassment and oppression today. So please come and talk to us if that is you. For now, let's take a moment to reflect.
Heavenly Father, please, would you help us to receive the encouragement and to receive the warnings that Jesus gives in this passage, to take them away with us today. Please don't let the word be snatched from hearts. Please help us to take it to heart. And we pray that all of us in this room would know the power of your Holy Spirit filling us more and more to resist the devil and his works, to experience daily the joys of being in Jesus' kingdom. Amen.